In Ohio, a black woman's body is found beneath a bridge and labeled victim number eight. In New York, a black woman is found dead inside a storage tote and will become known as Peaches for the heart-shaped peach tattoo on her breast. And in Georgia, a black woman's bones are found in the underbrush by a man walking his dog. Like many women of color who came before and after them, their stories fade from the news coverage, if they're even covered at all. These are their stories, or the pieces of their stories we're able to share with you. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by the hosts of the Fruit Loops podcast, Wendy Williams and Beth Williams. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. I'm going to just jump right in because this episode is a little bit different. Now, most of our episodes are based on my book, Doe, which is poetry about missing and unidentified women, which is why we have that poetry tribute at the end. The core of those poems were written between 2008 and 2015, although I'm actually announcing here that I'm writing new poems for future episodes. Well, that's fun. That it, Well. <laughs> is it fun? I mean, writing is fun, but like the subject. Well. Well, yeah. I mean new material. New material. Yes. New material is fun. The subject is never fun. No. And so one of the questions that I'm frequently asked and that we often talk about in our special Behind the Poems discussion on Patreon is why I picked each case in the first place. And what I often say to you is that there's like an image or a situation or a moment that I can't stop thinking about. Right. So do you have like a particular reason for today? This is a little bit different, though. This episode is how I noticed issues in my own approach in selecting cases to cover and how those choices were replicating systemic issues, issues that like suppress stories of missing women of color and kind of in that suppression make it less likely their stories are heard and therefore solved. And so we're using this episode today as a way to talk about the phenomenon known as missing white women syndrome and examining this through the cases of nine unidentified black women who are included in the poem that's read at the end. Okay, so I'm familiar with this poem and there's really not that much information in it. Exactly. And so we're going to talk about why that is. And so we're talking about missing white women syndrome, even though this is the case of, or nine cases of unidentified women. And that's really where we're going to start like exploring the concept of missingness, because this missingness, the landscape is like replicated in what we talk about when it comes to unidentified women. So they share a lot of similarities. Okay. So we're going to go back in time a little bit to 2004 when I wasn't doing anything important in my life, but the legendary Gwen Eiffel was reigning and she was at this conference called the Unity Journalists of Color Conference. And at this conference, she uses this phrase, missing white women syndrome. And this is believed to be like the first time this phrase is used. Okay, and some context for our listeners. Gwen Eiffel is a news reporter? Yes. And what she is, describing is the extent and depth of media's coverage of missing white women 
hence the name. And while stories of missing women of color are often underreported or passed over completely by the media. Right. But then we all know certain faces that get shown all, all the time that are those white women. You know, we, we all have like, like, even if you don't follow along with true crime, there are going to be some women whose faces are burned into our memories and, and their names as well, just because they've gotten so much coverage. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a while for this term to take hold. As you just mentioned, like there are women whose faces and names we remembered, like so missing and murdered women who we know and can recall very quickly. And like, this is why we know, like say, Natalie Holloway, and we know her name, but you might not know the name of Stephanie Tatiana Flores Ramirez, even though they were murdered by the same person. Oh, that's, see, that's fascinating to like think about it that way. Not saying that Natalie Holloway didn't deserve that amount of coverage, but they both deserved it. Exactly. And, you know, you might have heard of Gabby Petito. Exactly. And she disappeared August 2021, but you might not know Lauren Cho, who went missing from a private Airbnb property in June of that same year and whose body was found in the desert several months later. So, no. I don't. And maybe a lot of our listeners haven't either. Right. And so like, we can't really build a theory off of single cases like this. So like, even though like we can come up with these examples, like we kind of actually have to look at the, the larger picture to see like, basically was Gwen Eiffel right in this terminology? And, you know, I personally wouldn't question a legend like her, but, you know, I think for our listeners, just giving them some statistics and information to kind of frame this out is helpful. I will say that even though, you know, she used this term almost 20 years ago, God, there has actually been few studies on this topic. So scholars dive into this more, please. And so the first thing to look at is the actual landscape of missing persons cases. In 2022, there were roughly 48,000 missing white women reported and nearly 21,000 missing black women reported missing. So is it actually just because less black women go missing? Right. Well, so that's one of the things that said, like, you know, if we're looking at raw numbers here, 48,000 women who are white versus 21,000 women who are black, obviously there are more missing white women. But when you kind of look at this in terms of adjusting those raw numbers for population, right? Right. So in this case, if you take white people of all genders, they account for like 76% of the US population, though they make up 59% of missing persons cases. Okay. And if we look at the population of black people in the US, all genders, it's roughly 13% of the population, although they make up nearly 34% of the missing persons cases. So what that tells us is there's like a greater risk, there's greater chances of a black person going missing in America. But just simply because the numbers look different, people don't realize that percentage-wise, there's a lot more black women missing. Right. And then if we look at media coverage, so the rate of coverage, both in instances of coverage and intensity of coverage, show that white people will be covered at higher rates. One study showed that missing white children made up 67% of the Associated Press's coverage of missing persons and 76% of CNN's stories of missing persons. So that means that the media stories that we're hearing are largely dominated 
by stories of white people. And do we know a reason why that's happening? Yeah. So basically, there is an understanding that even though this is news, it's largely driven by advertisement dollars. And there's this... Wait, we're thinking about like missing persons kind of in terms of what's marketable? Yes. So there's like a phrase in reporting, which is called, if it bleeds, it leads, mm -hmm. which says that crime cases are drivers of clicks and looks and people sharing this information. And that that phrase is, you know, historically based and still true. And so when we're talking about what's covered in media, we're also talking about what gets the most eyes on a story. And there's this belief amongst media leaders, essentially, that what gets clicks are, you know, young white women who come from kind of affluent backgrounds. And so I just mentioned a few other factors in there because this is considered an intersectional issue. We have gender, we have age, we have socioeconomic background. If we're being fair, She Goes by Jane covers the stories of missing and unidentified women, although it is much more likely to be men who are missing or unidentified. Right. So you could honestly do the same work you've done, but only about men and never run out of information either. Exactly. Right. And so to really understand how this works, I'm going to have you, Vanessa, take this brief questionnaire. This is pulled together by the Columbia Journalism Review. And I'm going to pass this over to you. And I kind of want you to walk us through what you're seeing because they've They've done like this nice website that kind of illustrates this at play. Okay. Okay. So how much press are you worth? This is my quiz. Yep. How much press I am worth? Mm-hmm. Okay. So calculate my press value. Okay. So what's my age? So I'm going to put that 45. Next. What's your gender? Female. Next. Where do you live? New York. Next. What's your ethnicity? White. Next. So now I have to wait for my results. So I am worth 17 news stories. So the press coverage of your story would be below average. Gee, thanks. <laughs> um, in comparison, a missing white woman in her early 20s would usually be covered in over 120 news stories. Mm -hmm. So we still seem to care about my whiteness, but not my age. Right. You have aged out of news coverage. And this says Vanessa will be covered in 11 local news outlets and six national news outlets. Now, Vanessa, I'm worth 19 news stories. Wow. So what your whole like... It's my youthfulness. Your whole three years of youthfulness. Basically. And so Vanessa's story is likely to be covered in places like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Post Standard from Syracuse. But she's not likely to be covered by news outlets like NPR or BuzzFeed or CNN or ABC or Forbes or the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, none of those places. And honestly, I don't know if we have 11 local things that could show me. Yeah, you know, they do ask where you're from, and I don't think they quite calculate out the ruralness of <laughs> where we live. But what I did before we began is I calculated out my number, which was 19. Yeah, and you're, you're four years younger than me, yes. right? So, so that four years has given you two extra news stories. Right. And what I did, though, is I was like, what if I took all of my same demographic factors except changed out race? How many news stories is it then? And it was eight still living in the same area, still the same age. Yes. And you're only getting eight now. Exactly. Okay, that's a 
that's a big difference. Right. Yeah. That's it's a very that's a very depressing difference I think between the two. Like it's it's a little surprising, but it's also just like yeah, it's it's, it's sad. Mhm. And so when I began writing poetry, I wasn't actually looking at the cases I was selecting with an eye towards who was included and who wasn't. For a lot of my early work, I picked cases that resonated with me emotionally, by which I mean specifically for me as a person. Those women tend to be younger since I was practically a baby when I started this work. And they tend to be women of lower socioeconomic status, and they tend to have experienced hardships in their early or teen years. So for instance, Teresa Beer, who we covered in an earlier episode, that would be an example of someone who kind of met all those checkboxes for me personally. Or Deanna Merrifield, who we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode in the future. Or even the Leslie sisters, who we focused on a few episodes ago. And after a while, as I started to like think about the terrain or like the landscape or the realities of what Missing in America looks like, I went back and I examined the poems I had written. And though not all of the women I had written about at that time were white, a large percentage of them were. Now, the ones that weren't white at that time, were they getting more coverage for one reason or another? It really varied. Right. Some some were, you know, had more coverage, some didn't. And like, I'm going to be the first one to call myself out because I don't think we can effectively change or enact change unless we look at ourselves first. But I was participating in a system. I was looking for versions of myself or experiences that I was processing. But then I started to examine, okay, so if this is the situation and what's happening, what kind of outside factors are influencing my choices? Like, what systemically existed so that I could be aware of what to look for in the future when selecting cases for writing these poems. Right. And we've had discussions like this before where it seems like at that point, it might have been more comfortable for you to write about people that are like you as well, because then you don't have to worry about representing a life you have not lived. Right. Yeah. Because there is that dynamic as well. Right. Right. And so what I found when I was actually looking at the available resources and records online for missing and unidentified cases connected to women of color is that there was so often like a lack of information. So I'd see like paragraphs of text or newspaper clippings galore about white women. And then when you clicked on a case about, say, a black woman, you would find a line or two of text. And when you're doing what I was doing, like looking for images, looking for moments or pieces to pull together for a poem, that absence means clicking out of those cases into something with more information. And if I'm doing that, it's highly likely that other people doing the work that I'm doing do that. Highly likely that investigators or media reporters, they're doing the same thing. But it's hard to work with something that you don't have much information about. Even So the poem that we're going to listen to at the end of this episode, there's a lot of women in that poem but you really didn't have much information for any of them. So it would have been next to impossible to write a full length poem for any one of them. Right. So like, this is why this episode is like about like, what is the issue, right? Like, right. What is happening? So again, when we talk about like missing white women, missing white women syndrome, that sort of issue applies to unidentified bodies. And you would think that in an unidentified bodies case, those would be plastered everywhere. Right. Like after all, a body has been found somewhere and what is happening? How did that person end up there? But like that's not always the case, which I think I don't think a lot of people realize. I didn't. I didn't yeah. realize this before. And so we're we're talking about those cases, like comparing the coverage of Natalie to Stephanie or Gabby to Lauren. 
There are going to be people who say that there are other factors that influence that coverage, which is why I'm going to bring up Dr. Cheryl Neely, who's a woman much smarter than myself on this topic. She's a professor of sociology and the author of You're Dead, So What? Media, Police, and the Invisibility of Black Women. Dr. Neely covers this more in depth, but a piece of her studies say that when all other factors are accounted for, meaning if you take two women of the same age range, same economic status, and compare the amount of coverage they get, race would be the determining factor. So just like I did with that example of that quiz. So above everything. Right. So like if if all other factors are equalized, yeah, that's Races. why, yeah, that's why I have twice as much coverage than a black woman of my same age and region. Now I'm going to take what she said and apply it to the first unidentified woman we're talking about. And just to pause here, we're going to talk about each woman in the order they appear in the poem. So this is not chronological, but we are starting with the earliest case I used, which takes us all the way back to June 6th, 1937 in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. Now on this day, 14 year old Russell Lawyer was watching dragmen drag the Cuyahoga River looking for a man who had fallen off the deck of a tugboat. And while he was down there, he noticed something just under the abutment of the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. So they're looking for one body, and I have a good feeling we're about to find another. That, that is, yes, what happens. So lying in a rotting burlap bag were the skeletal remains of a woman. Okay. When police arrive, they started assembling clues and there was lime in the bag that was believed to be there to hasten the disintegration of the body there was what appeared to be fabric from a dress sleeve nearby along with a black wig and a stocking cap and there were two very notable things one is that inside the burlap bag was a newspaper from june 1936 so the previous year okay indicating that the victim could not have been murdered before then and the second is that the victim had been brutally dismembered. Her limbs were severed with what was described as surgical skill. Okay, so you said that in the bag it was skeletal remains, though. So how do we know that that's a black woman? Okay, so first I get the impression that she was not fully skeletalized. Second, I think as we're talking about this and as we're talking about race and how it's used throughout any unidentified person's case is a lot of this is not exact. Like you think there would be better science behind this, but there's not. So could she have been of a different race or ethnicity? Absolutely. But this is what they put out there. So okay. it's a black woman. So they had a reason to believe that when they said that the yeah. police did. And okay. whether or not accuracy of any of this, right? Right, because how could you ever know 100% unless you knew that person in their entirety? Right. Yes. So this woman is connected to a series of murders in Cleveland's Kingsbury Run District. They all have similar patterns. We're really going to get into this in depth in a future episode where we discuss another unidentified victim of this situation. But Kingsbury Run is described as a desolate region near the heart of the city. And it's like largely a shanty town. And there was a series of murders that was taking place during this time frame. This killer is dubbed both the Cleveland Torso Murderer Ew. Oh. and the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Neither of those are pleasant. No. The newspapers leaned hard on catchy 
naming devices here. I guess so. He's believed to have killed 12 people, both men and women, between 1935 and 1938, though there's some who believe those numbers are even higher. Now, this particular woman that was found underneath the bridge, she's labeled victim number eight. Okay. So he's going after men and women, and is is he only going after black victims, or is it just anybody? Anybody. Okay. So these murders make the headlines regularly, and at some point, the police hone in on a possibility for an identification for this victim. She's tentatively identified as Rose Wallace, a black woman who disappeared 10 months earlier. There were a lot of details that seemed to match up, including an identification of her dental work by her son. But this dental work couldn't be confirmed by her dentist, though, since her dentist had passed away years earlier. Okay. Still, there's like a lot of hesitancy to definitively identify her as Rose. Largely, it seems because the dates didn't align. So there are some people who are like, we think this body's been there for a year and Rose has only been missing for 10 months. But is that really a big difference? Like big enough to change everything? Yeah, I don't believe so. So like, I think a more contemporary lens here would suggest otherwise. And there's a lot of disagreement amongst the investigators in her case. And I don't think anyone is fully satisfied, but ultimately this woman is still listed as an unidentified woman and Rose is still missing. Okay. Yeah. And now this is not a story of investigators not doing their jobs to find a killer or brushing this case aside. Police interrogated over 9,000 people and even infiltrated the community, posing as various residents of Kingsbury Run in the hopes of catching the killer. So they did take this case seriously. Well, you know, not necessarily this specific case, but this specific grouping of cases. Because of the situation with it being so many. Exactly. Okay. But this is an example of the way media covered this particular victim. There was very specifically little detail about Rose and her disappearance or the work done to see if she matched up with an unidentified woman in the media. There was, though, intense coverage of a woman named Frances Polillo, who was a 44-year-old white waitress and barmaid. She's considered victim number three, and her image is everywhere in newspaper articles from the time. In terms of location, time, cause of death, socioeconomic background, Florence and Rose, or victim number eight, have a lot of similarities, but one key difference in the amount of coverage of their case, and Florence is white, and victim number eight and Rose are black. So at the same time with with what's happening, she's the white woman is still getting more coverage. Yes. So even if they are taking all the cases collectively seriously, it's still it's still coming up to that the white woman is the the forerunner in like what they're trying to find. Exactly. So if it wasn't a situation where there were multiple victims and there was only victim number eight. Do you think that as much work would have been done? Yeah, we're, we're going to examine some cases of some some single people and kind of look at how they're covered okay. differently. But in many ways, the story of how race interacts with true crime as a genre is not one we can really like cover completely in one episode. But if we ask ourselves how many missing women can we pull off the tops of our heads in terms of our memory or that sort of thing, we can also ask ourselves how many perpetrators of color do we know? 
In 2021, Helen Rosner at The New Yorker spoke to Dr. Jean Merler, who's a true crime scholar. Dr. Merler made a point about the disappearance of Gabby Petito, that true crime itself amplified stories of white women harmed by white men. Dr. Merler says true crime seems to want to tell itself and us stories about white people, white danger, in a way. I think it narrates a version of America that is mostly white. And while we don't specifically focus on perpetrators on She Goes by Jane as a podcast, our guest readers for this episode, Wendy and Beth, are the creators behind the podcast Fruit Loops that looks at serial killers of color. And in this story that I'm about to tell you, we intersect because they've done an episode on the man responsible for the murder of this unidentified woman. And we'll link that episode if people are interested in learning more about him specifically. But this unidentified black woman is one of four unidentified women connected to this killer. She was found in Marine, Illinois on March 11th, 2002. She's known as Madison County Jane Doe. And very little has been released publicly about her. We know that she's black between the ages of 23 and 30, between 5'1 and 5'6, and weighed maybe 105 pounds. So we don't know very much. No. And investigators believe she was murdered anywhere from four to six months before. Okay. When she was found, she was wearing a red and white checkered flannel shirt by Tommy Hilfiger in a size men's extra large, and she was wearing a Second Skins brand shorts. She, along with Monroe County Jane Doe, St. Clair County Jane Doe, and St. Charles County Jane Doe are all linked to this killer, a man who is thought to have killed as many as 17 women. Now, we don't mention perpetrators' names on our podcast, but really, despite this happening in 2002, this is not a name I recognize. And why is that? Yeah, I think that this goes in line with what the scholar was talking about when it comes to what stories get told and what don't. So it's not a white guy. It's not a white guy. And what he did to women is horrific. To avoid being too graphic, I'll say that he would kidnap women, particularly those working in the sex industry and those with drug addictions, and take them to his residence where he would bind them, assault them, and torture them before killing them. And he would record these murders. He's one of the few serial killers that we know about who document his crimes like this. In this case, he was caught because a newspaper ran a sympathetic article about one of the women he murdered, and he wrote in, supplying a map printed from Expedia, and he wrote, nice sob story, I'll tell you where many others are, along with, to prove I'm real, here's directions to number 17. The mark is on a spot in West Alton, Illinois, and it did indeed lead to the discovery of a murder victim in that location. Investigators were able to obtain from Expedia all the users who had looked up West Alton in the preceding days and then were able to trace his IP address. Did he get caught because of it? Oh, yeah. So, like, they were like, who does this IP address belong to? Oh, okay. And then they arrived at his house and they're like, there's blood all over your house. And he's like, huh? Despite these brutal assaults and murders, little has actually been publicized about any of the unidentified women connected to him. This story that I just told you is filled with details about what he did to them, but very little about who they are or what investigative leads are being followed in the cases. And Madison County Jane Doe is reduced to her clothing and guesses about her body type and some clues about the demographics of his other known victims. Okay, and again, if if anybody wanted to know more about him specifically, they can listen to the Fruit Loops episode that we're going to link? Yes. Okay. 
And like this is specifically a case that is tied to a serial killer, which usually gets more media attention. And when we don't have that information, like a potential suspect connected to it, media is even less interested in covering those stories, like the question you were just asking. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. In this case, a woman's body was found in Cranberry Township in New Jersey on February 28th. 1977, and her case is covered in the briefest column inches in the papers. She was found by a maintenance employee off the New Jersey Turnpike, adjacent to the northbound access ramp, leading from the Molly Pritchard service station, or the commuter bus ramp. She was located down a steep embankment at around 2.25 in the afternoon. She'd been shot twice in the head, and investigators believe she died two days before, so on February 26th. So little is known about her, at least publicly, because even though this was a brutal murder, it didn't rate in the local papers. There's no clear identifiable subject here or perpetrator. The woman was black. She may have been between the ages of 20 and 30. But it's also said in some places that she might have been between the ages of 16 and 20. So we have no idea again. Right. She was recorded as being 5'7 and 125 pounds with a slight gap between her front teeth. She was wearing an aquamarine birthstone ring, which means her birth month may have been in March. And she had on three sterling silver rings, a 14 karat gold ring, and a white metal lady's watch. Her right ear was pierced. Her fingernails and toenails were polished. And at one point, investigators were able to trace her shoe to a store in Brooklyn. I always find it so crazy when we're talking about these cases that like there's so many like identifying features on some of these unidentified women, yet nobody 
seems to know who they are. Like, that sounds like a pretty distinct, well-put-together woman. Mm. Yeah, so this is a case where, you know, there are all of these, like, very specific details, but if the media is not pushing it out there, pushing right. these stories out there, then people might not see it. So, like, unless you picked up this newspaper on this specific day to read, like, the tiniest little article about her. And in those newspaper articles, did they even put all, like, list all of that jewelry and all those little details about her? No. So you kind of have to, like, assemble across, like, a bunch of very short, brief articles. And by a bunch, I mean, like, it's, like, less than a handful to actually come up with all the bits and pieces. It's awful because I just feel like if there was a rundown of more of a description, like a list of those pieces of jewelry or, or those things, right, that it would be so easy. photos of those very specific right. things. Yeah. So this is how media comes into play. And this kind of lack of coverage might be surprising to a lot of people. And I think at some point I found it surprising too. I mean, I don't anymore. But what if there aren't any contemporary articles about an unidentified woman? Like, what if they didn't even make the news at all? And when I go back into the newspaper records and can't find anything, what does that mean for the coverage of the case? It's possible, yes, that they were covered in like maybe a television news source that hasn't made it to online. But there's like this erasure happens. And if it wasn't reported then and it's not being covered now as like a cold case, what does that mean? So on April 2nd, 1998, a woman's body was found in Lake Ray Hubbard in Texas by a fisherman. She was about a half mile south of the 4400 block of State Highway 78. And it's believed that her body was in Lake Levon before she went through the floodgates into Lake Ray Hubbard. She was a black woman and estimated to be between the ages of 30 and 50 and 5'7". She was wearing a black teddy, Adidas jogging pants, gray socks, and black Adidas shoes. She had on a guest watch and had two hoop earrings in her right ear and one in her left. Investigators believe that she died between one to four weeks before and was killed by being shot several times. So another, another shooting death. Yeah, and I really want to tell you more about her, but there's just this brief case information about her floating around on the internet. There's not like substantial articles or news coverage of her body being found. And so it's not going to be surprising at this point when I tell you about a black woman who was found August 16th, 2002 at 1.45 in the afternoon by landscape workers in the yard of 3225 Ravenwood Avenue in Baltimore along the railroad tracks. I think you'll know at this point how little her story was covered. Though it's possible that she was killed the year before, she was included in the accounting of Baltimore homicides for 2002. She was the 163rd that year. So there's really not much effort put into these individual cases as much as far as like, I mean, there might be with the police, but there is not as much with the media at no. all. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the few facts reported about her. It's her being the 163rd murder of the year. So almost like a benchmark instead of a person. Yeah. Some things that are reported is that her body had been mummified at this point, though they could tell that she was stabbed in the back because there were knife marks on her seventh vertebrae. She was tied up using a red Rome cable UL gauge number E13662, and that was wrapped around her neck, hands, and feet. There were no fibers of her clothing to trace, no fingerprints due to the mummification of her body. She could be between the ages of 20 and 30, 
somewhere between 5'2 and 5'5. And she had a gold front tooth with a dollar sign or maybe an S on it. And she'd been there a year? Possibly up to a year. So we don't know. And we don't know any of it. Yeah. And so looking at case after case, you start noticing the lack of information and the lack of news coverage. And it's something that once you see, you can't stop noticing. Well, and that one seems particularly brutal. So it's just, it seems like, it seems like there'd be more effort put into finding out not just who she is, but who did this. Like we can't have somebody who's binding people and stabbing them just out. Like So it it doesn't make sense to me on so many levels. Right. Like you think... You would think. You would think. But no. No. And so like after doing this for a while, like I can actually trace changes in cases that I originally knew and went to and how they've been covered over time. And one of those in our very first episode, if you flash back, we covered the story of Laddington Jane Doe. And we talked a lot about whether her case was connected to a man known as the Long Island serial killer. We are, yes, well aware that someone has been arrested. But when I wrote the poem that we're talking about now, people weren't even using that name Long Island serial killer or even the Gilgo Beach murders because they hadn't been found yet. But this woman specifically, she was found on June 28th, 1997. And she was found near Hempstead Lake State Park by a family and their family friends who were out on Long Island for a fishing clinic when the kids got bored and they decided to all go for a hike. So is she connected to Laddingtown Jane Doe in one way or another? Yep. Okay. Still not sure what's happening in Long Island. Right. So many questions about Long Island. They found a dump site where... A woman's torso had been left inside a Rubbermaid container inside a black plastic bag. She'd been placed in there with a red or maroon towel and floral pillowcase. She became known as Peaches because she has a peach tattoo in the shape of a heart with a bite taken out of it, and that's located on her breast. That is as much as I knew about Peaches for the longest time, like that like brief and brutal bit of information, a woman's torso being found. Just a torso with a tattoo. That's all we know. And I've watched this story change over time. So in April 2011, when they began combing the Ocean Parkway after Maureen Brainer Barnes, Amber Costello, Megan Waterman, and Melissa Barthamay were found, they discovered, of course, more bodies, which we talked about. On April 4th, 2011, they found the remains of a child that they named Baby Doe, who was found east on Cedar Beach, near a woman who was called Jane Doe number 6. On April 11th, they found the partial remains of a woman that they labeled Jane Doe number 3. Five years later, so in 2016, they linked the partial remains of Jane Doe number 3 with Peaches. And then Peaches was identified as the mother of Baby Doe. The partial remains of Peaches and Baby Doe, her child, are the furthest distance apart from the known victims along the parkway. They're separated by about 10 miles. The story of Peaches evolves over time and that's largely because these connections are being made. It's how the initial information that I had, a woman with a C-section scar becomes a woman whose child was murdered. Have they been identified now? No. So Jane Doe number six, the woman found closest to baby Doe, she got her name back in 2020, she's Valerie Mack. I believe that one day Peaches and her child will have their names as well. 
So on October 28, 2002, the Mobile Police Department posted to social media looking for the relatives of Elijah, Lige Howell, or Howard, who was born in 1927 and died in 1963. He lived with his wife, Carrie, in Pritchard, Alabama, and when he passed away, he was living in Mobile with Lily Mae Wiggins Packer. It's very clear to me that they're using investigative genetic genealogy in Peach's case, and this is somehow a connecting relative, but that they've hit some sort of brick wall in the process of linking them. Do we know how close of a relative he is? No, they did not okay. say. It's possible since, you know, that October date, they've progressed even further, but no information has been released. But I do believe eventually we'll know who Peaches was. And so you can use science that our developments here to move these cases forward. Investigative genetic genealogy is like one of the most powerful tools that can be used to give the unidentified their names back. But this is really complicated by the fact that the largest pool of users of home DNA test kits are white Europeans, particularly Western European descent. And when there are fewer users in a database, like say GEDmatch, those tracing of relatives to find the name of an unidentified person takes longer or it stalls out and it takes years to figure out what might be happening while they wait for new uploads. How did they have that other man's Peach's possible relative? How did they have his DNA? They might not have his DNA. Okay. They might have done um, like a family tree. Okay. And he's somewhere in the family tree and figuring out his relatives will help figure out the connections. So if they don't have her name, how do they associate her with a family tree? Yeah. Okay. So they have her DNA. They've connected probably some people in that family tree and they're working out the family tree web basically. Right. And so they're looking for this guy because he might, his relatives might provide further information about how she's connected to them. Okay. Yeah. And so when you look at solved cases using this technology, they're overwhelmingly white. But despite this one woman, I think investigative genetic genealogy could be used on is an unidentified black woman found in Glen County, Georgia on August 16th, 1990. And her case, like so many other cases here, didn't really make the news cycle. A young man who was walking in the woods near a private hunting club found her remains in the underbrush. Now, this wooded area is located about one and a half miles from exit eight on Interstate 95 on a road called Canal Road. There's some belief that she could have been dumped there by someone who exited I-95 and just used the like nearest road they could find. And she wasn't found very far off the road, about 37 feet away, and there wasn't really an attempt to conceal her body. Based on the investigative information, it's believed she was left there between June 16th and June 27th of that year. There are varying age ranges given for this woman, but many place her between the ages of 20s and 40s. She was wearing a men's pullover colored shirt, blue or gray lands end pants, and a really distinct leather belt with plastic beading on it. It just, it kind of makes you wonder with some of these cases, because a lot of these women are, they're not, they're the people that did these things are not concealing their bodies in any way. It's almost like they know that not much will happen from it. Like they're confident they're not going to get caught doing these things. Like I just can't imagine committing a crime and just like leaving that out in the open and, and not worrying. Right. 
I mean, when we talked about the case of Aklutna Annie, one of the things that investigators ended up saying is that they felt like they taught him that it was okay to hurt sex workers by not pursuing those cases. Right. Yeah. And sometimes when I think about cases, particularly like these brutal assaults against black women, these cases that are lingering, that don't get coverage, that we're not hearing about, like we're, we're teaching people who would harm them that like nothing will come of it right there's not going to be a repercussion there's not even going to be a news story exactly now the fall line actually did an episode looking at her case that i recommend listening to and they found what i did which is that really there's minimal coverage of her case lauren norton though she did get the file for this case all 600 pages of it so it really does seem that despite media or the lack of media coverage, investigators had been trying to follow up on leads since she was found. What the Fall Line team also found is that Glynn County Doe's remains are still being held at the medical examiners, and that the medical examiners had conducted isotopic testing on those remains. We talked about this before in the case of Marcia Sosman King, who was known as Buckskin Girl, but this would enable them to determine where in the country she may have lived before she was found in Georgia. Now, the episode of The Fall Line was released in 2021, and so hopefully investigators have made some progress on her case or considered moving to investigative genetic genealogy rather than isotopic testing. Investigative genetic genealogy requires investigators to understand like its value for particular cases and funding streams to make it happen, and media attention on a case can help propel those two things forward. So Peaches, for instance, as soon as she was tied to this major case, it helped move along the process. There's more pressure to keep her case progressing. Media coverage also helps get the story in front of more people. That's why it's sought out in cases because more media interest, though it can times complicate a case, it also means more leads are coming in. Now, we talked about this next woman before, also when we talked about the unidentified woman known as Laddingtown Jane Doe. And the reason we talked about her is because, again, of the Long Island serial killer case. Recently, the Mamaroneck police reached out to the Long Island Serial Killer Task Force and asked them to look into whether or not an unidentified woman found in their town is connected. Are they actually called the Long Island Serial Killer Task Force? Yes. Is that all they do? Yes. Seriously? I mean, because there's so many crimes connected or potentially connected. So that's like... From the time they get up in the morning till they get off work, that's all they're focusing on it every might not, single day. Okay. <laughs> it might not be the entirety of what they focus on, but this is a pretty big case, and I think there's a lot of evidence they're still processing. Okay. Yeah. This woman, she is known as Cherries. We've talked about her before because she has a tattoo of cherries on her right breast. She was found on March 3rd, 1997, when her torso washed ashore in Harbor Island Park in Mamaroneck and was found by a beachcomber. Her torso had been placed in a black or dark blue suitcase by Ingear Protégé, and this model was only sold in Walmarts. She was wearing a velvety camisole, a long-sleeved green t-shirt, and champion brand sweatpants in purple. Inside the suitcase were scraps of paper from a calendar page, one that read Cinco and one that said Begin to Live. Why would somebody put that in there? I don't know. Like, I don't know if they're like, there was something in the suitcase before or if it was like something associated with her. The Begin to Live part is a little creepy. Yeah. It appears in the poem. That part makes sense to me now, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and on March 21st, so a few weeks later, it was reported that a fisherman found her right leg and foot on the rocks in Cold Spring Harbor, which is across the Long Island Sound. And the next day, a groundskeeper at the estate owned by James Dolan, who just happens to be the CEO of Madison Square Garden, found her other leg, this one wrapped in black plastic on the shore. They believe she may have been dead for two weeks. And like most of the women we've talked about here, so little is known about her. She may be between 35 and 50, between 5'4 and 5'6, between 160 and 200 pounds. There's some thought that she may be black, but she could also be Hispanic as well. And the driving force behind this theory is the perceived lightness of her skin and the care label on her shirt was in Spanish. I don't know if the care label is a great clue. Yeah, but that's, there's just so little. There is really very little. And then there's her tattoo, the cherries. It's a relatively small tattoo, just one and a quarter inches in diameter. And this tattoo was shown to a variety of tattoo artists and none of them recognized it as their work. But some of them said it looks like a cover-up tattoo, mostly because the stem is like extra long and there's some red marks outside of the black lines. So it's not like... That sounds like they would know that. Yeah. And Vanessa, usually you ask me like if I think a case will be solved. And so for peaches and for cherries, because there's so much energy behind the Long Island serial killer case and there's a whole task force... Yes. You think they will? Yes, I do. But they never achieved all of both of their bodies. Correct. They're... So it's going just, it's going to just be a DNA type. Yeah. So this is really gruesome, but it seems like for both of them, I believe both their heads are missing. That is very gruesome. Yes. And so there's this like force of the media behind it because as this story develops, I'm constantly seeing news stories about the Long Island serial killer and where the investigation is, right? But like what happens when there isn't this public eye on a story or what if there's not necessarily a serial killer or perpetrator involved like what happens to those cases and so what are my thoughts on an unidentified black woman found in lakewood washington on june 19th 1995 a woman who was likely unhoused and living in a vacant lot like i really have my doubts right and like so many other stories here maybe it was covered on a local news story like television news that just hasn't been digitized but like she's really missing from public media coverage she was found by people cutting grass in the lot and her small encampment was surrounded by blackberry bushes and i can tell you so little about her except that she had an enlarged heart we think that when a body is found if a person is not identified of course we're going to hear this story we trust the media to bring us this news, to tell us like these stories that actually matter. What happens instead is like media is driven by these ad dollars I was talking about earlier. Those dollars have decided for us that the stories that we want to hear are stories of young white women of financial means. Is there a way for us to change that? Yeah. I mean, if you consider that the way they determine stuff is by clicks, and shares. So if we simply clicked and shared on those cases of unidentified black people or unhoused people or people that usually just slip through the cracks, if we shared that more often, there'd be more direction put towards them. Right. So like it's kind of rewarding good behavior, right? So we're rewarding the media with our attention and our interaction. And then they'll be like, oh, like that's stories that we should cover. And 
like I'm going to say what I say in both my lectures and my readings when I talk about this topic. Everyone here is getting the more in-depth version of this. But when Gabby Petito went missing, she deserved all of the news coverage she received. It's that news coverage that helped drive forward some of the clues that were found in her case. But one of the conversations that arose around her disappearance is that she was found in the state of Wyoming, a state where 710 indigenous women have gone missing over the previous decade. And those women deserve, we deserve to hear those stories too. Right. And now when that happened, I did see a lot of people saying she shouldn't have as much coverage, but we are not saying that. We're saying she should have the coverage she had, but they should also have the coverage she had. Yes. 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 Not, not less coverage for anyone. Right. More, More coverage, coverage for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. And identifying the problem is a step, but like we need to move to the next thing, right? The now what? Right. And like, what are we actively going to do to change this? How can we as a podcast, like you and I? How can our listeners? Right. Yeah. And how can true crime as a genre as a whole effectively make change happen? And so this episode and the poem you're about to hear in a moment is the moment that we're saying, here's the problem and we're going to be moving to the next stage. So my book itself, Doe, represents that imbalance that's present in media and available public information about women of color. And that imbalance is one that I'll be using this podcast to course correct. In 2024, I'll be working on new poems, and most of those new poems will be done in the mindfulness towards accurate representation of what the landscape of missing and unidentified women in the United States actually looks at. Because these women, all of them, their stories matter. We are now going to listen to Amy's poem, Hear the Heart, read by Wendy Williams and Beth Williams, hosts of the award-winning true crime podcast, Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops was born out of their desire to create a podcast with diverse voices covering diverse stories. You can listen to Fruit Loops wherever you get your podcasts. Hear the Heart. Unidentified women discovered between 1934 and 2008 in the United States. To grow hearts inside a laboratory, you have to care enough to keep them alive. Remains beneath a bridge, burlap, newspaper, skeleton, an advertisement for the theater. The company sent a letter proposing disappearance, and the girls performed, playing the missing. Scientists sleep beside glass houses every night and wake at dawn to begin again. Remains discovered near an underpass. Rural death near milepost 23. Examination revealed height, weight, approximate age. A charm of death. Inside, cells divide, take shape along a predestined plan. The hearts know. Remains in Cranberry Township. Pierced blue an outline of bone. Birth month of March in a twisted horseshoe strap. Their worth. What we mean by life is something small and necessary, a force greater than its sum. Remains spotted by a fisherman between Lake Lavon and Lake Ray Hubbard. She was awakened from sleep. How one thing transforms into something else. In other laboratories, the scientists grow. Remains near a track wrapped in red and the knife marks there to trace. Miniature versions, hearts smaller than a kiss. They inject chemicals to enlarge. Remains with a tattoo of a peach in the shape of a heart. The cells, 
Introduce disease where there was none so they can watch the hearts expand. Remains pulled from the woods along Canal Road by a man hunting scattered bones. Grow past the boundaries of what they were made for, and this is how in that light. Remains are a torso and two legs washed ashore two days apart. Cold on the beach, a storm floods blue, and when pieced together, the phrase begin to live. A heart begins to die. Remains in a vacant lot, her heart surrounded by blackberry bushes. Check out our Behind the Poem episodes on our Patreon page to find out more about the inspiration for the scientist's part of this poem. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.